Today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by the robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. It's my distinct honor to uh, introduce our guest speaker today. He was also our uh, guest speaker at a retreat this past weekend in Princeton. Uh, Dr. Alex Jun resides in sunny California, specifically Arcadia. Uh, He's a fighting Trojan. He got his undergrad, master's, and PhD there, although he teaches currently at APU, Azusa Pacific University, uh, where he teaches higher education. He's written two books on race with a third forthcoming any week now. Uh, He's a ruling elder at his church. He's a TEDx speaker. He was a missionary in Cambodia, uh, and the list goes on and on. But the most important thing that you have to know about Alex, if he does look familiar to you at all, is because in his former life prior to academia, he used to be a movie star. And you can talk to him about that when he comes forward. And so with that, why don't we give him a warm, warm welcome. Well, I bring you greetings from the West Coast. I'm sorry, the West Coast. It is good to be here. Uh, thank you for, thank the Lord for warm weather, warmer weather. Um, I could barely handle it. Um, it's good to be here. Pastor Aaron, thank you so much for the invitation and uh, for the kind welcome. It's great to be here. I feel like I'm at my own home church in Los Angeles. It feels very, very familiar to me. So it's like being with family. So it's good. Um, all right. Well, let's dive right in. I want to begin by asking you this question. Um, do you know what's going on in the world? Do you know what's going on in Korea, North and South Korea? If you've been living, un- unless you've been living under a rock, you'd know that North Korea and South Korea are still technically at war. Um, we had this iconic image of the uh, North Korean leader and the South Korean leader shaking hands, embracing for a moment. And then we saw the President of the United States doing what was unimaginable shaking hands with the leader of North Korea. I grew up in the United States. I was born um, 
in Virginia, Alexandria, actually, that's how I got my name, Alexander, uh, born in the United States, but my parents regularly would tell me stories about Korea. You can take Alex out of Korea, but you can never take Korea out of Alex. So I'd hear these stories time and again about all the atrocities that uh, the Japanese had done to a united Korea at one point. And then after that, there was a war, and then brothers and sisters fighting brothers and sisters, and all the calamity that ensued with that um, period of time, war. South Koreans hated North Koreans. South Koreans hated Japan. Some people would say they can't stand the United States and their imperial way is coming into South Korea. Um, so that was all sort of a distant thing for me. For my own experience as Korean-American, I had the same experience. Um, I grew up in L.A. We had the riots in 1992. Black people didn't get along with Koreans. Mexicans didn't get along with uh, black people. Um, all the other non-Korean Asians don't like Koreans, I found out. That's a, we have our own issues. Yes. Yeah, so all of these things you can see, conflict, challenges, and enemy. We have lots of enemies. In this passage, as we get started, we think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, much can be made of this qualifier, good. Good is a descriptor used to denote a distinction of the Samaritan. I suppose if, if he simply said and referred to the Samaritan as merely the Samaritan, a knowing audience would rely on their prior knowledge of what a Samaritan is and assume that they were not good. And we do that all the time, don't we? We talk about jumbo shrimp. Because shrimp are small, we know we have to qualify by saying jumbo. Or kind mother-in-law. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> this dialogue between the lawyer and our Lord captures an underlying tension between two people groups. Jews and Samaritans do not get along. Now, I'm not sure why they don't get along, these two groups. Uh, Samaritans are recorded as being ethnic Jews, but only half Jews. Uh, apparently, they had intermarried with other people groups. Samaritans also had different worship practices, and they believed only in the Pentateuch. But perhaps the fact that they would leave their own ethnic group, leave their own kin, leave their own kind, and marry outside of their group was reason enough for these religiously righteous people to despise the other group and look down on them. I don't know, but it sounds plausible as I think about my own history and I think about my own family and rules that we have about marrying outside of your tribe. We're not talking about Christians and non-Christians. We're talking about outside of what it means to be Korean in my case. Well, this story reminds me that with the arrival of Jesus, change was coming. The way that religious leaders handled their day-to-day -day religious practices that included hatred and disregard for other ethnic groups was about to get disrupted and it was about to change. Now they were required to live and to love in a radical new way. Let me ask you a question here, beloved. Do you want to be more loving? Do you want to be more compassionate? Do you want to understand what it means to be hospitable? then this parable is for you because it shows how gospel love can cross any barrier or any boundary. Sometimes our gospel compassion and our love can't even go across the dinner table to the other side of our bed and across the street to our neighbor, never mind across cultural, ethnic, and gender 
boundaries, and certainly not to our enemies, as we see here in the Good Samaritan story. So I'd like us to consider how this kingdom parable illuminates and illustrates for us what kingdom love and compassion looks like and how we might grow in that very same love and compassion. There are many, many characters in this story that was read, but I'm going to focus on three in this scene. I want to talk about the lawyer, the Samaritan, and the traveler. The lawyer, the Samaritan, and the traveler. First, let's talk about the lawyer. The backdrop and the context leading up to this exchange is fascinating, isn't it? Throughout Scripture, Jesus is seen confronting the misguided thinking of religious leaders. They are zealous and pious leaders who think that they are right in their theology. He also challenges these religious leaders on issues of ethnicity. Throughout Scriptures, we also see Jesus illustrating what the kingdom of God is like, especially its nature and power. This parable has been used to teach about the need for social justice by Christians and also by secular friends engaged in social justice. And on some level, this makes sense as the parable illustrates for us the nature of kingdom mercy and compassion. A lot of my friends and co-workers I do work with, part of my research I use, uh, critical race theory, and a lot of critical race theorists who engage in this work and appreciate the criticality of what I do along the lines of race are amazed that I believe in the person and work of Jesus, that I've committed my life to the Lord. At the same time, my family, people who are Christians, brothers and sisters, are amazed that I would consider work like social justice as something that Christians ought to be doing. Make no mistake, friends, if you're on one side of this argument saying, I care about social justice, but I don't understand what Christians do. Or you're a Christian and you love the Lord, but you don't understand all this stuff about social justice. Understand that we must not separate the love of our neighbor from our love of God. As John Stott once said, it is impossible to be truly converted to God without being thereby converted to our neighbor. We notice in this passage between the lawyer and our Lord that Jesus uses the parable to show the lawyer a deeper problem with his heart in asking the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer reveals a fundamental flaw in his thinking and his approach to God. And our Lord offers this parable to begin what I'd call spiritual open-heart surgery with everybody listening and watching. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's so much to deconstruct in this question. I mean, it is a strange question, is it not? Normally, when you inherit something, you don't do something to get it. That's not how inheritance works. So the question then presupposes some fundamental misconceptions about inheritance. The lawyer is essentially a legalist whose whole life is oriented around performance, a works-based approach toward his faith. That's why he's asking, what must I do? Rather than simply saying, how can I receive? Or how can I believe? We see Jesus flipping the script here and posing a question back to the lawyer, and he asks him, well, you know the law. You're the expert. What does the Old Testament say? And the lawyer, of course, answers with a great response that summarizes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 10. Also, um, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And it speaks to the heart of eternal life. Again, it's a great response that the lawyer offers. It demonstrates his orthodoxy. Or does it? The lawyer wasn't really orthodox. The lawyer was a legalist. 
In fact, he was quite unorthodox. He didn't understand the doctrine of grace. Perhaps sometimes we too struggle to know the difference. Jesus knew the lawyer's heart that all the orthodoxy in the world that the man had could not reconcile preferential treatment against another person along ethnic lines. Jesus affirms the response. He says, you're right. But the lawyer continues to press the issue, doesn't he? And he asks, who is my neighbor? Now mark this, in verse 29, it says, desiring to justify himself. Now that's the key here. Desiring to justify himself. You see, he is trying to limit the overall number of people he has to love as he's asking this question. He wants to hear the bare minimum standard requirement of who he needs to love. He wanted to compartmentalize his love. He's employing what I would refer to as the minimax principle. Minimum investment, maximum return. I mean, think about, there are people who ask questions uh, because they really want, they have an answer in mind that they just want confirmed, right? I get this all the time. Uh, Elder Alex, uh, do, you, do I have to give before taxes or after taxes? What's the right tithe? <laughs> or how far is too far in my dating relationship before I start getting in trouble? You, you, you sort of want to limit the scope because there are things that you want to do or not do. Jesus responds and tells him with this beautiful story, the story of a wounded traveler and two people who passed by. Let's talk a little bit about the two people. We've got the priest and the Levite. Now, the priest, who is the priest to this listening audience? He's the hero. Everybody loves the priest. He's always winning. Uh, the equivalent here would be the priests are like the New York Yankees of religion. Well, it's too soon. I'm sorry. Too soon. Yes. <laughs> They're champions. They're always supposed to win. We, we rely on them. Uh, the Levites, well, second place, they're like the Mets. So um, these are examples of established religious professionals who, for whatever reason, these people that we trust to do the right things all the time and always do, do right by us, they walked on by. And that probably came as a shock to the listeners. Now, this third person in this example, one might assume that Jesus might use a layperson, Israelite, maybe a Yankees fan, for example. But no, Jesus drops the final bomb. The one who shows mercy is a Samaritan. The enemy, the enemy did something kind. There was this long-standing distrust, hatred, broken fellowship among these two different people groups. In offering this example, the Lord calls on the listening Jewish audience and calls them out on their blind spots. Sometimes it seems like all the good orthodoxy in the world can't save us from our own cultural blind spots. Daryl Bach says this, that it's quite possible that for the lawyer, the neighbor was only someone within Israel. He would never have considered a neighbor to be outside the nation of Israel. I could see that in my own community. I have some family members who would go out of their way to help other Koreans and Korean Americans. They would pass by many other ethnicities right in front of them to go help only other Koreans. So it applies very much to my own life as I think about what it means to love your neighbor. But let's talk about the Samaritan. Who is the Samaritan? Well, the Samaritan is the last person that the Jewish audience would, would expect to do this. He's the worst enemy. He wouldn't help a Jew, and a Jew wouldn't help a Samaritan. And the Samaritan here is the hero of this parable. He meets the basic human needs of somebody in need with, with deeds. 
Now, I argue that these deeds were costly. These deeds were sacrificial, and these deeds were audacious. What did the Samaritan not do, friends? Well, the Samaritan didn't walk by the traveler and say, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with you. He did not argue for the spirituality of the church and the danger of the social gospel if I were to get involved. He did not begin to rehash all the reasons why you people ought to be despised. And he certainly did not blame the victim and begin to question, why were you there in the first place? Perhaps you brought this affliction on yourself. No, the Samaritan had compassion. The Samaritan gives all that he has, his time, his money, bandages, oil, wine, and his very own animal, along with his heart of compassion. There was a cost associated with this. Friends, there is always a cost that's associated with service. But let's turn to the topic of motivation. It begs the question, doesn't it? Why would the Samaritan do what he did? The Samaritan helps the Jew, the enemy, while under no obligation to do so. It's one thing to help somebody who's a friend. It's one thing to help someone you love. It's an entirely different story when you help your enemy. So let me ask you this question. What people group simply causes your stomach to turn at the mere mention of their name? Who has become your sworn enemy? Believe it or not, for some people, the word that turns people's stomach is Christian. The world cannot stand the way Christians are hypocritical, the way we don't help and don't serve, the things we say, the things we do. Perhaps we are the ones who are the Samaritans in, Samaritans in other people's eyes. I love uh, my friend Scott Sauls, who in one of his books, From Weakness to Strength, described the Samaritan this way. But the Samaritan, the true neighbor who was labeled by every Jew, not as a friend to be trusted, but as an enemy to be avoided, risks his own life to care for the man. You might say, based on the parable, that the Samaritan loves the Jewish poor better than the Jews love their own poor. Put another way, he loves his enemy better than his enemies love each other. In a world where people of faith are sometimes treated as the enemy... In secular society, are Christian leaders in particular thinking like the Samaritan? If we're not, we should. Perhaps we want to be recognized as the Samaritan in the story, the one who shows mercy, being good, being a good example of the, what the Lord would use to convict and rebuke others. I know I do. I'd love to be the Samaritan in this story, but alas, the reality is I'm the religious leader. I say the right things, know the right things, but I'm filled with excuses as to why I didn't help and why I didn't engage. But God is gracious to us, is he not? He loves me, he loves us, despite our flaws and our failings. Another word about motivation, dear Christian, guilt cannot be and must not be a reason for us to engage. What is the motivation for us to pursue mercy for the stranger, for the enemy? Why did the Samaritan do what he did? Well, the key can be seen in verse 33. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion or pity. But the word compassion is interesting. It, passion is embedded in the word compassion, isn't it? It means more than pity. 
Your insides are all turned upside down. You're deeply moved. In the, it's the same word that the Bible uses to describe the kind of love that God has for us. It's hesed kindness. Hesed is God's covenantal faithfulness to, and promises and a plan for his people. It's a self-giving, self-sacrificial kind of love. The Samaritan loved his neighbor with the same kind of love that God loved us. This hesed we find most clearly and it's seen in Christ who was God's hesed for us on the cross. So in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Friends, your neighbor is anyone who is hurting. Your neighbor is anyone that you've characterized as your enemy. When your enemy is also hurting right in front of you, whoever is your enemy, your moral, political, or ideological enemy, God is calling us to love them. Love them locally and love them globally. Globally, it's interesting, when we pray about evangelism, we want to see change in the world, but which hat are we wearing? <laughs> Harken back to my story of uh, uh, Korea, North Korea, South Korea, and all the drama that was going on. I had an opportunity to visit South Korea, and I met South Korean Christian educators and leaders in the church, and I just assumed growing up because my parents and grandparents always said, we want reunification, reunification. So I said, are you all longing and preparing for reunification? And to my great surprise, South Korean Christians said, oh, no, 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 we, reunification. That would devastate our economy. Plus, we don't trust them. We don't know who they are, right? We, we, we can't fundamentally trust them. The South Koreans responded this way. It was fascinating to me that that was their concern as Christians. How is it any different here in the United States when we talk about foreigners coming into the country and we say, oh, no, 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 that, that will devastate the economy. Plus, we don't trust them. Which hat are we wearing when we talk? We are all dual citizens, friends. We all have dual citizenship. One is here on earth and the other is in heaven. And when we confuse our national understanding with our great calling as citizens in heaven, we are lost. I love this example of when we see these uh, leaders getting together. And I know some people are very cynical. They're saying, well, North Korea, South Korea, shaking hands. It's, it's political theater. That doesn't really matter, right? They're very cynical. I get it. I'm very cynical myself. But for that brief moment when I saw two leaders, enemies, sworn enemies, shaking hands and embracing, I wept because I long to see reconciliation. Maybe you can't relate because it's so far away, but some of you can understand this if you, have, you come from a broken home, you have broken relationships, your parents are divorced, and maybe there was that moment where uh, you saw mom and dad get together for, just for that brief moment. Even in your cynicism, you said it gave you a glimpse of hope that there would be reconciliation. Maybe they could work things out. God is calling us to be reconciled with one another even in the midst of this great pain that the other person has caused and that I've caused the other person. But God has also reconciled with us. He has bridged this gap. He was the original reconciler with us. So when we think about our, our theology, our, our confessional theology colliding with our functional theology, things that we say we believe are different from the things we actually do that reveal what we really believe. For example, have you ever prayed that the Lord would bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? We pray this all the time. We send people out. We want more missionaries to go out to places. We pray for the Muslim community. We say we want to send that missionary family out to uh, somewhere in, in the Middle East, right? 
and which, you're part of the 1%, right? You guys have wonderful video on the 1%. And we think, who are we going to send? Let's send that kind of awkward person who doesn't really get along socially. That would be a great missionary. Let's send them. No, you want to send your best people, the best people for the Lord. By the way, if you don't know who that awkward person is socially, it's probably you. Okay, um, as you think about what this great cause, we, we want to share the gospel with the rest of the world, and we pray, 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 Lord, give us opportunities so that we might send one family to go to a Muslim-speaking country. And what does the Lord do? The Lord answers our prayers overwhelmingly by bringing Muslims here to our very communities. And what is our response to the Lord's answer to prayer? We say, no, Lord, that's not what we prayed. We want to do the work over there. We want to send someone over there. We don't want to do it here. It's the disconnect for us. What do we say when we see strangers here? What does the Bible say? I was a stranger and you welcomed me, not I was a stranger and you tried to deport me. One may be a very American response, which may be okay. The other is a very different Christian response, which we ought to abide by. We have to hold on to multiple realities. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said, the test of a first-rate mind is to be able to hold on to two seemingly contradictory thoughts at the same time and still be able to function. Friends, can you despise someone's politics or lifestyle and still show mercy and charity and kindness and grace? Yes, we've lost that art in this country. Make no mistake, sound biblical theology toward God must lead to a deep love of people. Okay, I've talked about the lawyer, I've talked about the Samaritan. Let's talk about the victim. What do we know about the victim? Well, not very much. The Bible doesn't say too much about this person, and the commentaries that I've read do not go in great detail on the victim. <laughs> and that reminds me how true that is for victims. They are usually voiceless, aren't they? We see that time and again in our society. But what we do know about the victim, that the victim is in dire straits. This victim is in desperate, desperately in need for compassion. Friends, guess what? We are that dead person. We are that victim in need of saving. We are the ones in need of help, in need of a good Samaritan. We are the ones in need of a Samaritan not only to help us and to heal us, but ultimately to save us. Jesus found us, not half dead, but completely dead in our sins. We are not some random person on the road. We were his sworn enemy, and he loved us still. The Samaritan is a type of Savior, and unlike the Samaritan, Jesus doesn't mount us on his donkey. He mounts us on his very own back and carries us to the cross. The Samaritan is actually the one who is telling this story. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Samaritan who paid a great cost. He gave up everything, everything to save us. So brothers and sisters, let's return to the original question. What can we do to inherit eternal life? Absolutely nothing. This parable is really saying that you inherit eternal life not by what you can do, but by embracing what Jesus has done. Friends, when Christians see us, when other people see Christians loving others, we are demonstrating God's love and being a witness. Let me quote Scott Sauls once again here, 
who said we ought to take every opportunity to surprise our neighbors, especially those who don't believe as we do, with a life-giving, otherworldly love. Imagine with me, if you will, for just one moment. Imagine if Christians demonstrated loving mercy and kindness to the LGBTQ community in ways that would surprise them. Not because they deserve it. We certainly don't deserve God's grace that's bestowed upon us. Imagine if Christians were the first to reach out and support refugees and strangers in our community. Imagine if Christians were the spiritual first responders to a crisis, to our hurting neighbors, despite, despite our ideological, political, and moral differences. What would that look like, Exilic Church? What would that look like? May we emulate our Samaritan neighbor Jesus, who being rejected and scorned by the world he created, showed mercy to his enemy. Amen? Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy to us. We do not deserve your love. We were your sworn enemies, yet you died in spite of our failings, in spite of our wretchedness. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. We pray for those who are here who are seeking, trying to understand who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would move and speak in their hearts, Lord, and remind them how much you love us. Help us as Christians who bear your name that we might surprise those around us to lovingly, charitably support and comfort those even in our disagreements. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.